Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 302nd edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting right across the world this week from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles in California. That's where technology meets entertainment, the entertainment capital of the world. I'm sitting at the most magnificent day here. It's probably about 85 and 90 degrees. I'm sitting in the studio looking right across the whole of the west side of L.A. It is just beautiful. The city looks crystal clear. This week in our interview segment, we're having another interview by legendary Silicon Valley venture capitalist Tim Draper from his blog series, The Startup Hero. Tim's investments include Skype and Hotmail and Tesla and Baidu and Theranos and Overture and Switch TV and YePay and Indiegogo and DocuSign and Parametric Technology and AngelList and a whole bunch of others. He's the creator of Viral Marketing. He's instrumental to the success of Hotmail and Skype. Today's interview with Tim is Nadir, I'll try and get this right, Bagavayev, who's the CEO and founder of the Bagavayev Corporation. And his corporation is currently focused on launching nanosatellites. So... It's from Tim's series, The Startup Hero, which you can get on YouTube. Now, Uber and Lyft, they're not only crushing the taxi business, but they're also murdering the rental car business. The collapse of business travel spending on taxis and rental cars is pretty extraordinary. Uber and Lyft's combined share of the ground transportation market in terms of expense account spending in the second quarter of 2017 is 63%. So 63% of all grand transportation is Uber and Lyft, with taxis now plunging to just 8%. It was interesting, went to the Hollywood Bowl a few weeks ago, and after Queen was which you've got to go and see if you get a chance. Um, there were about a 1,000 Uber cars and not – or Uber and Lyft cars and not one cab. It was quite amazing. Now, it's only two years ago in Q, Q115 when expense account spending on Uber equaled spending for taxis for the first time each with 25% of the market. So two years ago – Uber had 25%, taxis had 25%, now Uber's got about 58% and uh, cabs have got 8%. Rental cars still dominated. Two years ago, rental cars had 50% share, but now they're at 29%. So their use is halved. Uber's growth continued despite the seemingly never-ending disasters that continue to occupy the news. You know, there's been one story after another, even with Kalanick gone, 
there seems to be stories, a lot of it about Kalani apparently wanting to come back. And lifts rate of growth has surged from 3% a year ago to 8% now. So lifts more than doubled. In an analysis of major US metros, taxis lost ground everywhere except in Miami and Atlanta. And Lyft picked up share everywhere except Miami. And uh, Uber lost between 1% and 6% in every city except Chicago, where they gained a percent. But you'd expect them to lose a little bit as Lyft came in and took some. But in Q1 217, the most expensed brands in overall business expense were Uber, 7% of the total expensed brands, Starbucks, 4%, Delta Airlines, 4%, American Airlines, 3%, and Amazon, 3%. And in Q2 2017, despite all the problems Uber's had, its share of overall expense reimbursements jumped to 9% and was once again the number one most expensed brand processed by the Certify system. Now, Uber's also taking business away from other sectors. It shows up in the number of Uber business expense transactions of $100 or more. With 3.6%, Uber had the greatest number of transactions over 100 bucks, compared to Lyft at 0.4%. Because of the significantly lower cost, business travellers are now using ride services in situations where hotels, car rentals and other services might have been used in the past. People, instead of saying in a, in a hotel for 250 bucks, will say, oh, well, I can get an Uber home for 210 bucks, so I'll go home. Or instead of a train, I'll just get an Uber to take me. Or instead of getting a short flight, you know, for a couple of hundred bucks, I'll get an Uber for a couple of hundred bucks. So this trend of Uber's got consequences for uh, the hotel sector, airlines on short hops and all sorts of other travel services. Rideshare companies have spent an absolute fortune on the shift to autonomous cars and they'll become far more competitive when they can get rid of drivers. With the large amounts of money rideshare companies have raised worldwide, they'd be able to continually expand and demolish a number of other business sectors. Here in the US, we're pretty spoiled because, um, for example, from the airport to the the Hollywood Hills where I live, in an Uber is about 20 bucks, where in a cab, it's about 50. But in Sydney... um, where I also have a home, um, there's not a lot of difference. Uber's cheaper, but not much cheaper, because during the week, Uber drivers are guaranteed by Uber a minimum of 50 bucks an hour. So that pushes the, um, the Uber rates up, but still cheaper than cabs. And who wants to ride a cab? They never know where you're going, you know, they stink. You know, they're always in awful condition. Anyway, overall car ownership's going to significantly enjoy negative growth as more people in urban areas decide that it's easier and cheaper 
to paper ride when needed rather than paying 24-7 for the overall expense or hassles of owning, driving, parking and maintaining a car. I don't know how much um, my car costs me a month, but it's going to be a fair whack. It would be um, a couple of grand easy. And I can do a hell of a lot of um, Uber travel for a couple of grand. And um, I can sit in the back and use my computer or my cell phone legally while I'm being comfortably driven around. So car companies, manufacturing companies have got to be worried. The entire auto industry is already rethinking its business model. General Motors, faced with plunging car sales and soaring car inventories, has started discussions with the United Auto Workers Union to eliminate six car models. Entire car plants are at risk. So major industry disruption is accelerating and at the moment Uber and Lyft are getting in stronger and stronger positions. You probably all remember the Google Glass I thought it was cute, but it didn't, um, and I enjoyed it actually, but it, it, uh, it didn't work. But both Microsoft and Google envision a not too distant future in which donning smart headgear to do some work, repair an engine or an elevator or assemble a tractor motor, it's the norm. So you'll be able to look through your glasses, it'll tell you everything you need to do in sequence. So you just do it. It's like... IKEA for anything. So over, over the past several days, both tech giants have revealed they're each taping, taking steps to make that a reality. Microsoft's working on a new artificial intelligence chip to power its second-generation HoloLens headset. The co-processor's chief job will be implementing a machine learning technique with a structure that loosely resembles the human brain into the HoloLens core processing unit and a dedicated AI chip is necessary to enable it to be able to comprehend large amounts of complex data gathered by its depth and camera sensors. And the HoloLens for business is likely to arrive in 2019. And this announcement about the HoloLens came just days after Google divulged new information about its plans for the next iteration of Google Glass. It's the first time they've spoken about the new version of Glass for the workplace, and they call it Google Glass Enterprise Edition. The refreshed model will offer faster, more reliable Wi-Fi connectivity, improved security, a faster processor, a sharper camera, and a longer battery life compared to its predecessor. Taken together, the announcements are confirmed. Taken together, the announcements confirm that Google and Microsoft view technologies like smart headgear and augmented reality as strategically vital, particularly in the workplace. You'll remember that um, Google smart goggles, the Google Glass, ultimately was a flop. But both Google and Microsoft have apparently learned from Glass's mistakes, focusing on applications in commercial scenarios. Google's placed Glass 
Enterprise Edition in some 50 businesses over the past two years, including companies like DHL, Sutter Health and Volkswagen. So while the basic concepts behind HoloLens and Google Glass overlap, in execution they couldn't be less alike. Google Glass is meant to be physically insubstantial, like a pair of literal glasses, only noticeable when somebody needs it for a specific task. It displays a small virtual screen above the wearer's eye, which can be glanced at without disrupting other visual tasks. The new version is able to clip onto existing eyeglasses, rendering the technology more accessible for those who need prescription glasses or protective eyewear in their jobs. It must remain in the wireless range of smartphones to work properly. But HoloLens is much more immersive since it can display larger graphics that fall within the wearer's field of view. And unlike glass, it's also a functionally holistic device that's not constrained by reliance on smartphone or virtual reality-style computer tethers to operate. All of HoloLens' necessary computing components are built into the headset. So when you put glass or HoloLens on an engineer or a mechanic, being able to see the critical information they need at a glance, like how much torque should be applied to a wrench, or whether a new piece of equipment will fit in a medical facility's operating room, it both upends and streamlines workflow. The question then becomes whether HoloLens or glass will eventually dominate the workplace. Now, a lot of people in LA pretend to have lots of famous friends, and a lot of people have a lot of famous friends. But the secret's out that you can um, have famous friends around for dinner or at an event or use them in a, um, a promotional campaign without actually knowing them. You simply pay for them to come. They will be all very discreet about it, providing a check doesn't bounce. See, stars have got to pay bills too. And once, once their stars on the wane, or perhaps they're going through a patch where there's not much work, they need to pay the bills. And for corporations, inform marketers with limited budgets can afford to hire up-and-coming or even well-established celebrities who needs to work. Building brand awareness, volume and increased sales can be accomplished with non-traditional celebrities. So I want to mention to you four different types of celebrities which cost much less than the superstars but can still have a big impact. Firstly, experts. For example, your brand could possibly utilise a home expert if they're a good fit for your target demographic. There are many different types of experts in this category, such as mums, designers, party planners, do-it-yourselfers, cooks, um, all sorts of people that are on television for all sorts of reasons or in movies. Rachel Ray was an expert chef before her career success and fame gave a celebrity star status. So fees for a top-level expert can range from 100000 to 150000 a day, 
where a mid-level or a lower-level expert could be $5,000 a day, maybe ten. So they're people you can afford. Secondly, reality stars, stars like shows like The Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice created product endorsers from contestants and show hosts such as Bill Rancic and Ivanka Trump. Fees are similar to the experts, 5000 10000 And there's a sizable cost-saving cost user reality star celebrity that's in the mid-level to lower-level range. A third one these days that's important is bloggers. Now, social media has created a cottage industry of bloggers who influence consumers and add to their following. And uh, fees for a sponsored post vary from two grand to 40000 So fees for a blogger are in a similar range as an expert or reality star celebrity. Another one you might think of if you're looking for a promotion for a company is a deceased celebrity, someone who's dead. Um, a very good friend of mine owns the rights to about 300 dead celebrities and um, they hire them out for all sorts of uses and endorsements and things. And these days, um, there's a lot of work being done with holograms of dead celebrities and uh, you know one of the things that can't go wrong is they're not going to um, have any bad behavior <laughs> so fees range from I don't know 25 grand to half a million for a dead celebrity and you can find great quality and value in this category now hiring a celebrity at a certain point in their career is another way to reduce costs. You can either hire an up-and-coming celebrity, for example, a Super Bowl quarterback, before they get to the Super Bowl, taking a bit of a chance, of course. Um, it's usual, usually um, endorsement fees triple once they've made the Super Bowl. So if you hire a celebrity when they first become hot, then before they come hot, then you'll get them at a really good price. And below fair market value celebrities are ones who need work. And most athletes and actors are not guaranteed their next payday and they feel pressure for regular income. Knowing how long it's been since their last big paycheck can help you estimate fees. Another one is high name recognition celebrities. Celebrities are usually more willing to negotiate later in their career. A large number of categories fall, celebrities fall into this category and they can be a great way to hire a trusted, recognisable face at a very affordable price, often extremely affordable. You can get a lot of very well-known faces to come to a dinner party for from $2,000. There's actually a list that you can get of all the celebrities that will come to a dinner party and uh, pretend to be a friend and mix and socialise. And as long as you wine them and dine them and give them a check, they will be your best friend for an hour or an hour and a half. So next time you're invited to a dinner party and there's a whole bunch of celebrities there, think, mm, are these friends or are they just being paid? Not that it matters. They are interesting, entertaining, they get people talking about you and um, 
quite a good idea, really. So I'm very proud to welcome back to the 302nd Bob Pritchard Radio Show my friend, the legendary Tim Draper. And Tim today is speaking with Nadia Bagavinev. I can never pronounce that. The CEO and founder of the Bagaviv Corporation. And the corporation is currently focused on launching nano-satellites. Now, Tim decided to create the anti-shark tank blog by showing what a real entrepreneurial interview is like, not the fake shark tank. I don't know whether you know it. If you're an entrepreneur and you watch Shark Tank and you think that's how your interview is going to go with um, entrepreneurs, it ain't. They're scripted and um, it doesn't really happen like that at all. And you can listen to all of Tim's Startup Hero blogs and his podcasts on iTunes. I'll be back in a minute or so with Silicon Valley legend Tim Draper. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, I'm Tim Draper, and this is Startup Hero. Welcome to Startup Hero. Uh, I have here Nadir Bagaviv of Bagaviv Rockets. And uh, Nadir, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, Tim, first of all, thank you very much for this meeting. First of all, I wanted to thank you for continuing support my endeavor. And it takes, it seems like a special investor to understand these very long-term projects. Um, so we built... Rockets, uh, we are trying to open up the smallest channel into space for aspiring entrepreneurs by building smallest rocket possible, which is going to be about five ton in size, but it will be able to take small satellites all the way to space. So small teams can get together, um, come up with new idea, pitch to investors or work on it in university and then launch it with us. If it works, they can launch in bulk with other companies or stay with us for their customized services. And and what is your edge? Why are you better than what's out there right now? And uh, 
and other small rocket companies. Right? Why are you better than SpaceX, for instance? Um, we're better than SpaceX for small companies because they don't have to wait to get on the rocket for one and a half, two years to just get on launch manifest. Uh, we're customized service. You can launch with us next week or week after next after you give us an order to launch. Uh, so there's no downtime and there's no downtime that you have to pay your expensive engineers uh, while you're waiting on the ground. And so there's smaller rockets. Is there anything different in the design of the rocket engine or the, the shape of the rocket or anything that makes it somehow significantly different? Uh, well, in basic, all rockets are chemical machines that burn fuel and push it out. So you cannot be too inventive about it, but our rockets are 3D printed, rocket engines are 3D printed, which tremendously saves us on labor time, on skilled labor time, and eventually much of the manufacturing can be automated. And if you see a better design, you can make a quick shift. Yes, yeah. very quick changes. What is your training? What's your education? As a basic, I have a bachelor's in aerospace engineering from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida. Uh, before that, before even coming to the United States, I studied for three years as a helicopter designer engineer in Russia. Had a little bit of maybe half a year of experience working there. I was also enlisted in U.S. Army as a mechanic for helicopters and an officer in U.S. Army as air defense artillery officer. So through, a mil- through my military experience, I know how to obey orders and issue orders. <laughs> through my schools, I know my basic math and through some work experience. And you ended up being a U.S. military officer. Yes. But you grew up in Russia. Yes. So how did that all happen? Uh, Are you asking about my moral stepping from being Russian to becoming a U.S. Army officer or just, you know, stepping? Either. (laughs) It could be a moral. It could be any kind of a question. Um, Like personal. It's a personal question. Okay. my whole family moved to the United States when I was 19, and it was a voluntary choice. If you decide to come to America voluntarily, which means your conscience is yours to choose what side you take on. And I was always fascinated about the United States, about the entrepreneurial spirit, about things that people can achieve here including examples of Igor Sikorsky, who started Sikorsky Aircraft, and Werner von Braun and many, many other engineers. So by choice, I'm an American, um, and I thought that military, uh, first of all, would teach me all these leadership skills. And second of all, it is my, I actually wanted to know all kinds of power structures within, whether they're money structure, force structures, or everything else, because I, I I would I try to think more globally than than being tied to one country or another. Is that what you mean? Not necessarily being. Yes, that too. Uh, A lot of people say you know, United States is a global policeman, but I would rather see United States as a global policeman than China or Russia. They would be a little more cruel than Americans. Yeah, I think that's probably right. (laughs) right, Who knows? Our our country seems to be kind of getting a little rough around the edges, too. It's heavy-handed bureaucracy is getting a little... Somewhat true, but for example, if 
I learned basic types of weapons that both countries use, and Russians would still use thermobaric weapons, which is basically turn air into an explosive, and when something like that explodes, everybody loses their lungs around in every building. So if you design more inhumane weapons, then it's most likely that this kind of a cop would be less cool than this kind of a cop. That I get it. So these are kind of like very basic decisions on why you decide yeah. one or another thing. So why are you involved in space? Why do you care? Well, since childhood, I think almost everybody wanted to be an astronaut. I just never looked. Well, not everybody. Some wanted to be firemen, and some wanted to be princesses, and some wanted to be mathematicians and baseball players. Well, maybe I'm, I'm originally from Soviet Union. Where and they all wanted to be <laughs> every one of them? Well, yeah, 99%. Those who didn't hit it. <laughs> I I don't know if that's true, of course. I mean, I'm right. sure people want But anyway, to. you want it. Yes. Uh, and I thought I actually want to do not things like Mars or Venus. I wanted to go to other stars. I think that would be a very ambitious goal that I wouldn't be able to even achieve in my lifetime. But I would love to create multiple industries that are conducive to the time when it starts, maybe 100 years from now. When, they, when people would say, we have all the inter- industries necessary to build starships, which means huge, you know, 2,000 people stations, mm-hmm. uh, big mm-hmm. propulsion mechanisms that can propo- propel all of it um, for thousands of years, energy sources. So why aren't you pushing the, the technological envelope? I am. Uh, well, it's... A- it's the same kind of rocket engine as, as you see everywhere else. True. Uh, and I thought... What Have you tried um, those, uh, the rails, using rails? Like, use a rail gun and, and get yourself started and then launch from there? Uh, no, but I've constructed a little coil gun. Uh, the difference between rail gun and coil gun is rails are very simple. You have two rails, but very much current going through it. Coil guns are just... Uh, a solenoid. Things. Yes, so I, I actually made one and gifted it to my friend Jonathan, and he brought it here to show Brayton. So I, I'm experimenting with these things on a small scale. Uh, but one of the reasons I wanted to do the rocket company first is, first of all, if I'm successful, people will want to do any kind of business with me because I will build myself a name as a successful rocket builder, and after that it's easy to... To innovate. Easier to innovate. Second of all, when you do reach space, a lot of things are related to re-entry, to going into space, testing things on small scale first. Um, And this would be a perfect platform to try inflatable structures, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Solar reflectors, which are also can be reflective, uh, sorry, inflatable dishes, different types of radio or laser communications, uh, satellites that can go into constellations and act like one big radio telescope, and things like that. Um, and, yeah, I guess it's also my ambition to... I, when I was driving to Silicon Valley, I thought, what's the hardest thing that I can pull off based on what I think about myself in capability-wise? And I thought orbital launcher would be the most difficult 
thing that I still will be able to pull off within you know three to five years. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, and tell me about um, how it's gone so far. What what's happened? I I backed you and we put some money in and you have built. Tell me what you built so far and how far are we from getting something launched? Uh, To get to profitable orbital deliveries, we have three phases to go through. Uh, First phase was the uh, our first launch. Uh, So we did it in 2015 with the first ever in history 3D printed rocket engine. SpaceX did it three weeks after us with their um, escape tower. Mm-hmm. Um, our second phase in which we are right now is to launch suborbitally to space, which means you jump to space and then fall back. But the rocket will have everything necessary for complete launch, which means it will have autopilot, it will have engines, and it will have pumps. Those are three most difficult and most important parts of a rocket. So although this launch will not be as impressive as the final uh, launch that produces money, but it will have 80 to 90% of technologies that are necessary there. And that's why it took a little more time and a little more money. So which parts of that that do you have done? You have the the rocks, rocket and pumps, but you don't have the navigation. Autopilot is being built right now. We have hardware for it, but a skilled person have to sit and program it for two, three months. Well, and we... How many of you are there now? Two. Uh, our team is being rebuilt right now. Um, I have... There were four for a while, yes, right? Yes, yes. And the four of you worked on this one rocket engine, and then uh, you ran out of cash. Yes. Uh, and now you're back down to two, the two hardcore... Hardcore workers. workers yeah. But others are... Well, some people are not coming back, but others said, if you have more money please bring us back. It's a little different for aerospace engineers than, say, software engineers. People are very reluctant to change their industries because there are not too many aerospace jobs as there are software jobs. And it takes a long time to convince somebody to come to your team because startups are not very, um, you know, founded things. Sure. Uh, although, although I found out that my learning curve goes way much crazier in startup than being a usual employee even in engineering oh yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> oh yeah though you learn all through whatever life you lead you learn it's just a matter of what you learn including this fundraise actually it taught me a lot about being careful about cash having your runway having reliable people uh, both on my team and as investors uh, and also the value cash is king let's put it that way yeah well and it's not and it's good not to ever get into a position where you're going to run out so you should always be as an entrepreneur always be fundraising yes. don't spend it but always be fundraising so uh, what's the the current situation now is you are what's happened so, yes uh, so we're in phase two, and we are filing with FAA, uh, Federal Aviation Administration, to launch August 30th, 2017, which means this date is already going to be set in hard set date with government, so we cannot mm-hmm. postpone any further. What's the date? 
uh, August 30th, 2017, in Black Rock Desert, Nevada. And I'll, I'll send you... Yeah, you got to let me know. <laughs> yeah, let me know as soon as you possibly yes. can. Today, I talked to a person who will file with FAA, so he agreed to job to do the job as contractor. So although I have very few employees, I have a lot of contractors. I have a welding contractor who is building a launcher for it. I have somebody who will do paperwork. I have machinists. I have a person who does radios for a rocket. So I prefer... It seems like it's better to work with established contractors than try to bring in a lot of employees. At least now, when we become more stable, hopefully with next fund. How, how much uh, capital do you need uh, to get to that launch? Are you going to be able to do it with the money you've got? Yes. yes. To, to the second launch, we will. Uh, to profitable orbital deliveries, we will need another 20 to $25 million. And so you've got to get out there and start raising money again. Yes. Um, but maybe the way you raise the money is you invite everybody out to the desert. Yes, of course. I mean, phase two is specifically designed for that to show that although I don't have $100 million like Elon Musk to put into my company, uh, but with small amount of money that we have, we can achieve so much, which should be good enough proof that we can go all the way to orbit, to space. Yeah. Well, Elon, uh, Elon's rocket, I think, blew up either just before or just after we put the money in. He blew up three rockets, then he almost ran out of money, then he came to you, and his first launch was successful. Right. Thanks to you. Yeah, so we went ahead and backed it. Um, And rockets are... Notorious to blow up. It's it's flammable gas. It does blow up. So controlling it is a little like controlling a teenager. I found an interesting thing about rockets is you have to desensitize yourself so much to fear that it starts affecting your life and you start doing things that you, you, sh- you, sh- you have to think, is this considered bad or good? Uh, I don't know. Just driving a little less careful because I experienced so much of that fear there that almost stop being afraid of things that I should be afraid of. Yeah, good. Good for you. Well, you need to do that. At the same time. I'm hey, you got to be a you you got to be a hero. You got to take some risks. I guess that is part of it. Yeah. I think it's very important for Silicon Valley to have aerospace enclave uh, of entrepreneurs who do drones or as my friend Jonathan is doing that blimp drone, uh, me doing rockets, um almost like an accelerator for aerospace people because aerospace people need specific needs as in machines, 3D printers, CNC mills, and everything. And we have, right now we have to run around and ask all different companies. But if they would be concentrated in one accelerator-type area and every entrepreneur would have access to them, they would save so much on expenses of building any new type of machine. That's one thing. Okay, that's very interesting. Maybe we should set something up like that. In moving to the Silicon Valley, what was that like? Um, so before that, I worked for Xcore Aerospace in Mojave Desert. So first of all, this place is much greener. But <laughs> of course, way beyond all of that is it. It's like a nerve center of humanity. Uh, it seems like the whole humanity starts specializing. If you know Chinese are working arms and hands and things, but Silicon Valley is our nerve center that will eventually become a a brain. 
of humanity, if, if you look at humanity as one whole organism. Uh, and I thought it would be either in one of the big aerospace corporation, or if I start a company, it should be in Silicon Valley. And there was one point when um, one other company came to Mojave and launched their rocket, but it was unsuccessful. Uh, and I was sleeping in desert where they launched it, and I woke up, there was a beautiful sunrise. I thought, okay, it's time to start my own company since they fail and cannot do it. And what's the best way? Maybe you can accelerate. Yeah. So your speech on YouTube, where you talked about your son Adam Draper with his accelerator, and your son Adam is just as interested in rockets or <laughs> heroes and Iron Man to have me lucky enough to actually be a right fit for, for him. And then um, is your hope is your hope to get eventually get people up there or is it to um, get payloads up there or just to kind of design a really good engine? Or what, what is it that's your hope given, given the next 15 years? Uh, and that's again, the question is what's are my final goals before I die, which is build all the foundations for starships. But within my lifetime, or as you ask, within 15 years, yes, I would like to build a spaceship for two people because it's a very underserved market where you can take your significant one to space for a weekend. And that would be a wonderful $10 million per launch type of experience for Elon's going to have seven people sitting around. And There's no privacy when you have seven people. Yeah. So two people would be like a date. Exactly. Yeah. In, in space for a whole weekend. That's pretty interesting. There's a service there that could be done. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, good. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network you are listening to the bob pritchard radio show to connect with bob please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com that's bob at bobpritchard.com now back to the show Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. We're on Voice America Business Channel every week, and this is the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, and as per almost usual, we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, in the heart of Silicon Beach. Tim's got his own um, interviewing style, hasn't he? I met Tim a few years ago on his 50th birthday up at um, Microsoft up in the valley and uh, it was it was fun he's very laid back and uh, unbelievably smart and a really good bloke <coughs> now here's a great story that demonstrates that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from if you can identify a need then really apply yourself. You've got to be prepared to make a bunch of sacrifices and you've got to really work hard. You can enjoy great success as an entrepreneur. You don't have to be lucky. 
doesn't have to be something unbelievably difficult. It's got to identify a need where you can solve whatever the problem is much more efficiently, quicker and less expensive than anybody else. Now, this story shows that your startup concept doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be complex at all. In this story, two brothers turned just seven lines of code into a $9.2 billion startup. Now, the Collison brothers were born in Limerick in Ireland to parents with scientific background. His father was, their father was in electrical engineering. Their mother was in microbiology, although that's not really what they did. Dad ran a 24-bedroom hotel while mum operated a corporate training company from home. The boys went to a tiny school where, you know, 20 kids in a class and half a dozen classes. And Patrick spent his last year studying at home so that he could graduate at 16. Now, these kids are pretty smart because at 16, Patrick was named Young Scientist of the Year for developing a programming language and artificial intelligence system at 16. <laughs> he condensed a two-year test-taking process into a 20-day period where he aced 30 exams. So he did two years study in 20 days and he aced 30 exams. So obviously very smart. He enrolled, Patrick enrolled in MIT in 2006 and John followed him to America attending Harvard. In their spare time, they developed iPhone apps. They helped create a way to manage eBay auctions and sold that company, Optimatic Inc., for $5 million in 2008. Now, they dropped out of college and in 2009, they set up an office in Palo Alto across the street from the old digs of PayPal. There's such an improbability to their story that these little brothers from a little village would build what could well be one of the most important companies on the internet. That's where Stripe began. In 2011, Patrick was CEO and John was president. They spent two years testing their service and forming relationships with banks, credit card companies and regulators so their customers wouldn't have to. With Stripe, all a company had to do, a startup for example, was add seven lines of code to its site and it could handle payments. What once took weeks and weeks and weeks was now a cut and paste job. Simply cut and paste it. Now, Silicon Valley, Valley coders spread word of this elegant new architecture very quickly. And when you think about the market, every day Americans spend about $1.2 billion online, and that is increasing rapidly. It's certainly increasing rapidly around our house. <laughs> 
but the web's financial infrastructure is very old and very slow. Companies wanting to set up shop have had to go to a bank, a payment processor, and gateways that handle connections between the two. In 2010, the Collison Brothers Company, Stripe Inc., built software that businesses could plug into websites and apps that would instantly connect with credit card and banking systems and receive payments. So you think of that. You just plug into websites and, and your apps and you're instantly connected with banking systems and you can receive payments. I remember when I first went out to receive payments, it was a nightmare and going through all sorts of red tape and banking bullshit. And you can imagine that it would be such a hit that everybody recommended it and all of a sudden everybody wants to use it. Now, Stripe charges a small fee on each transaction and half of all Americans who bought something online in the last year did so via Stripe. Now, this has given it a $9.2 billion valuation and Patrick, now 28, and John, now 26, are two of the world's youngest billionaires. Now, one way to justify the numbers just to look at Stripe's new partnership with Amazon, which is, of course, the largest and most sought-after customer on the internet. Over the past couple of weeks, Stripe began handling a large proportion of Amazon's transactions. Now, nobody will tell you precisely how much that is, but you can bet it's a lot and growing. Now, Stripe is beginning to move beyond payments by writing software that helps companies retool the way they incorporate pay workers, detect fraud, all that sort of stuff. It's part of a very ambitious plan to revamp how online business has been conducted for 20 years and to give anyone with a bright idea a chance to compete. It gives two people in a garage the same infrastructure as a 100,000-person corporation. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Levelling the playing field. Now, today, Stripe's a financial engine for more than 100,000 businesses. It stores key financial information such as credit card numbers. It deals with fraud, adds support for new services such as Apple Pay as they arise, and it's getting close to handling $50 billion in commerce annually, which would translate to about $1.5 billion in revenue. And these kids are still under 30. <laughs> Three years ago, Stripe had 80 employees. It now has 750 do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. Lots of people read it. A lot of companies pick out the um, stories that they want to circulate and circulate it to all their employees. I know a healthcare company in London that does that, sends it out to five or 600 people. And the good thing about it is it takes just 30 seconds to read and every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology. We talk about subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, Ethereum, 
Ethereum incidentally just hit $300. And these are all subjects you should know about if you're going to survive in this new global revolution. It's free and its information is invaluable. Now, things like, for example, Ethereum, if you're not in Ethereum, there's something wrong with you. You know, you can get into Ethereum a few months ago for $7 or less than $7, and today it's 300 Bitcoin, if you put $1,000 into Bitcoin just seven years ago, you'd be worth $100 million today. So you should know about these things. You know, you can either go out and spend 1000 bucks on shares and seven years later be worth $100 million, or you can work your ass off 60 hours a week every week for 50 years and retire with nothing. I mean, the choice is yours. And all you have to do is subscribe subscribe to a newsletter like mine. So much easier. Now, there are 10 ways that um, AI impacts retail. We keep on hearing about artificial intelligence, but most people um, don't really know much about it, but they're worried about it. They think that, um, you know, they keep hearing that it's this big, bad monster. Now, and it's scary. I mean, Facebook just shut down an artificial intelligence engine after developers discovered that the AI had created its own unique language that enabled it to speak to its to other AIs, but humans couldn't understand it. They just created their own language without human input. And, of course, recently there's, there's been this um, highly publicised war between Zuckerberg who says that AI is nothing to worry about, and Musk, who says it will doom us. So it's really only three years in, and AI is really having a huge impact on what we are consuming. The posts on social media sites, the route we take via GPS, and the items we see on Amazon are just a fraction of what is impacted by AI algorithms. And... According to Alex Sen, who's the founder and CEO at Orkiv, there are 10 ways that AI impacts retail. Now, I'm not going to get through all of these, but retail manufacturing. Manufacturers use AI to detect defects over millions of units, and it can happen instantly. Voice-controlled assistants, for example, Amazon Alexa and Google Home use AI to figure out and understand speech and make appropriate requests and the accuracy is over 90%. Can make product recommendations. Amazon earns up to 35% of their revenue from product re recommendations, which works on AI. And it correlates past purchases, it researches searches products, what others like you have purchased, what other people that have bought the same stuff you have have purchased and it makes recommendations accordingly. AI impacts retail product selection. It um, realises data points which anticipate trends and serve up those trends to consumers. It impacts retail search. When you go out looking for something, it determines what you're looking for, how you can find it, and it, um, it'll analyse the thousands of searches going on daily on a retailer's site and refines them to reflect 
what people are buying with the right product to show to you. AI impacts retail with chat box. Just imagine you type in, I want a simple flowy dress for my next semi-formal and five results pop up entirely related to what you want. Retailer's chatbot will get better at detecting what you should wear as it gets more experienced and they'll know more than you do. Supply chain simplification. With enough data, retailers can predict far more accurately exactly how much and what they should purchase. So there's lots of ways that AI is already, and of course the payment system, AI is already influencing retail enormously. Just think of um, Amazon Go, where you um, walk in, there's no staff, everything you take off the shelf is automatically debited against your uh, credit or debit card, um, and that's all AI, no people involved. I want to thank all of the listeners for your tremendous support over the last six years and all the unbelievable members of Metal who have always been there for me and have provided over 100 interviews with the most prominent entrepreneurs in the country. Thank you, guys. Look forward to seeing you again next Saturday. And remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. You know, it's easier and it's more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing that you can really be. So I hope you have a sensational week and that you can join me again next Tuesday. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. Thank you very much. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.